This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 992, A Conversation with Michael Uslan. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 992. It's my conversation with Michael Uslan. You may not recognize his name, but you definitely recognize his work. Uh, Without Michael, you would not have any of the modern Batman movies. He was the one who uh, was able to get the rights in the 70s and finally in the 80s, uh, bring out the Tim Burton Batman movie. He's executive produced all the Batman films uh, in various media, and he's been involved in a lot of other projects as well. Uh, He has uh, two books out uh, that you should definitely pick out, uh, or sorry, pick up, I should say. Uh, one of the books is from a number of years ago. I think it's about from 2011. Uh, that particular book uh, was called The Boy Who Loved Batman, uh, which is a really great book, and I definitely recommend uh, picking that up and reading it. Um, and then there's also his newest book, uh, which is Batman's Batman, uh, which is, again, another fantastic uh, book and very enjoyable. And he's got a lot of stuff on the go. Uh, we talk about a lot of that in this interview. Uh, it was relatively brief, but I was able to to uh, chat with Michael um, while he was driving somewhere, and I was just very glad that uh, the opportunity to be able to speak to him. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Michael. Um, for um, this podcast is obviously ending soon with episode a thousand, uh, but I want to thank again everyone who's tuning in. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, there's a lot of episodes you can go check out, and a lot of great interviews. I have a few good interviews uh, up my sleeve that are still to come, including conversations with Sean McKeever, uh, Chip Sadarsky, and Zeb Wells to kind of round out the show before we have a, a thousandth episode spectacular with a lot of returning uh, just friends of the show uh, coming to be part of the show's final end. Uh, so thanks again for listening, and uh, let's if you want to email me you can do so at comic shenanigans at gmail.com rate the show on itunes subscribe to us on itunes for a little bit longer anyway and listen to us on stitcher also i think we're on amazon podcast as well and basically wherever podcasts are found generally speaking you can find comic shenanigans without further ado let's jump right into the conversation with michael uslan enjoy michael welcome to the comic shenanigans podcast how are you today i am terrific it is a bright sunny day on the east coast and low humidity, and can I be upset with anything in life when you've got <laughs> weather like that? Absolutely. Just for a moment, I want to say that this this feels like um, we, we've exchanged spaces here, and that you are, in this moment, Otto Binder, and I'm you. <laughs> well, that certainly gives me perspective. Um, you know, Otto was an important mentor in my life, and was the man who opened up for me a world of the golden age and the birth of the comic book industry and the birth of DC and Marvel and Fawcett. And he was my direct pipeline to C.C. Beck and so many great pros in the industry whom I was able to learn the history of the business and how all of these great characters were created uh, firsthand. So um, that was an amazing gift that he wound up giving me. Absolutely. 
Now, I want to speak to about your uh, your newest book, Batman's Batman, um, which is obviously, you know, you could think of it as a sequel to your, your first book. Um, it's such an interesting book in terms of how you approached kind of, um, you know, the, the pacing of it. Obviously, the original one was more of a straightforward memoir in terms of kind of moving chronologically, whereas this one was, you know, you kind of jumped around a lot more, but you were very precise in terms of how you kind of uh, built it out in with certain sections. Uh, how early in the process of kind of breaking down the new book did you come up with that format? Well, for me, my life has been about tangents. <laughs> and it's about tangents that don't go off forever into odd places, but tangents that life itself circle back again. And if there's anything I've learned over all these decades, it is that, uh, and I'm going to start to sound like Lion King now probably, <laughs> but, but life, is a, life is a circle in a lot of ways. And what goes around comes around. So what I wanted to do was show that the things we learn as kids, uh, the lessons we learn, the things we fall in love with and are passionate about, um, the experiences we have can come back into our lives and play an important part as adults because they all add up to everything that defines us. Mm. And when it comes time to define us, I go back to a lunch I once had with Stan Lee. And Stan said, you know, Michael, every great, long-lasting superhero was defined by his supervillains. Mm. And I was lucky enough to have a lot of superheroes in my life um, who gave me so many positive things. But even the supervillains in my life um, gave me things that I was able to turn around as what my brother used to tell me was negative reinforcement and say, boy, you know, I'll show them. I will show them I'm going to do this. And, uh, and, and it all adds up in a way that I wanted to recount in Batman's Batman. Absolutely. Now, one thing I, I really appreciated about, again, just in terms of how you approached your writing in both memoirs, um, which it feels like you don't always get a lot of these days, is just how happy... Uh, a picture you did picture, you know, kind of paint of your upbringing and your family and what that meant to you. Because I feel like often these days we we only hear about the bad things about people and people had this these tortured lives that created all this art. And yet yours felt very uh, different from that in a very positive way. So it was really kind of uplifting to hear about all these wonderful experiences. You know, some of them obviously more challenging, but um, the fact that, as you said, that you have all these superheroes in your life that really helped to create who you are. Yeah, and that is really true. Uh, my parents sacrificed everything. I'm a blue-collar kid from Jersey, and my dad worked six days a week. Uh, for him to take off his one and only day off on a Sunday and drive me around to the homes of Otto and all of these great creators, editors, writers, uh, artists from the golden and silver age so I could go to their homes and interview them for fanzines um, it was amazing. Or take me for comics or take me to the um, backdate book markets and auction houses that we knew had comic, old comic books that I could compile and add to my collection. Um, there was a lot of sacrifice on my parents' part because they had a geeky kid who had you know strange interests compared to uh, everybody else or my brother, the sports superstar. <laughs> and yet, um, when it came to sports, they catered to my brother and when it came to comic books and movies, um, building models, whatever it was, um, they catered to me also. And um, um, I, I've, I've had uh, just a wonderful experience as a kid, 
and a wonderful experience as an adult. So I'm a very much a happy camper. I took all my passions in life that I had as a kid and I've turned them into my work. And it doesn't get any better than that. Oh, absolutely. Now, as a kid, would you have ever, in your wildest dreams, have imagined that, you know, so much of pop culture now is kind of that old geek culture, things that used to be embarrassed about? Like, even, like, I mean, I'm I'm much younger, but I remember even growing up and being a fan of comics in the 90s, like, I didn't know anyone who liked comics. I knew, like, one person. Like, we were very few and far between, and now I, you know, I'm riding the subway in Toronto, and I can see so many people have, you know, comic book shirts on, and it's just this accepted thing, and as you kind of mentioned in one of your books, you know, you can go to a, a comic book movie and it's a date night it's accepted um whereas you know there was a time when you know you'd be going alone uh, so you know would you have ever thought that this is where we would come no not not in this aspect never in a million years the fact that girls don't think comic books are uncool that girls go to see comic book movies absolutely unheard of but let me give you a little bit of the context of the times um i grew up as a little kid in the 50s and in the mid-50s, Dr. Frederick Wortham came out with his book, Seduction of the Innocent, that blamed the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America squarely on comic books. And there was a backlash that it's, it's hard to appreciate from today's perspective. Almost, I would say almost all my friends were told they were not to read comic books and they were forbidden from bringing comic books into the house. Um, reading comic books, collecting comic books back then was absolutely subversive. And when Stan and Jack and Steve began the Marvel Age of Comics in the early 60s and into the mid-60s, you know, Stan was talking to us in those letter columns and in those Stan soapboxes. And we were building a community. And he wasn't talking down to us. He wasn't talking to us the way the woman at the drugstore counter where I bought my comics was talking to me because she thought I was some sort of sociopath, <laughs> uh, being older than 12 and still buying comic books there. Um, and and I, to, in all honesty, I miss the subversiveness of it all. It has become so mainstream today. Mm. But that's really what it was like. And in those days, there were no computers. There was no social media. There was no point of interaction among fans. Collecting comic books had to have been the most isolating, alienating hobby that you could have. It wasn't until fifth grade when Bobby Klein moved into our neighborhood and showed up in my class as the new kid that I found, oh my God, there's another kid out there who loves superheroes and comics as much as I do. I had no idea there was anyone else but me in the world. Um, and that was amazing. When Julie Schwartz, editor Julie Schwartz at DC, started to print the actual addresses of fans in all his letter columns, and we could begin to communicate with each other, um, I was there when comic book fandom really began to grow and subscribe to some of the earliest fanzines, which were magazines, amateur magazines, made by fans for fans and mailed out uh, every month. Um, that, that was the beginning of what brought us together. And the next step being when a young man named Bernie Buckness decided it would be a great idea to gather fans together at a comic book convention and started the first Comic-Con. And, uh, boy, I was there in July of 65. 200 of us showed up 
at that Comic-Con, 197 boys and three girls, uh, which gives you an idea of what was what. Uh, and one of those three girls was Stan Lee's assistant, Flo Steinberg, and another was um, Maggie Thompson, who is the, probably the queen of comic book fandom. And it, it, it was amazing where we learned that there were all these other people like us. And the importance of that word community um, can't be emphasized more. That really, we, were, we all felt alienated. We all felt kind of geeky. And now all of a sudden we found people like us. And that was great. When I go to Comic-Cons today and there's 150,000, 200,000 people and half the place is getting dressed up, it is about that same binding factor of community that resonates above everything else. For sure. One thing I liked, uh, well, I liked a lot of your stories in your books, obviously, but um, in your original memoir, um, the story that I, I'd never actually seen anyone actually describe something like this, but it was so fascinating to, to hear it described, um, was the idea that, you know, after the, the Wortham scare, that you had, you know, a friend's comics burned, um, which, I mean, I like... I, it's one of those things that I, I've read books about, you know, the, the impact of, of Wortham and what it did to the industry and, you know, how eventually you had the Comics Code Authority as a way of trying to, like, you know, self-regulate so that they wouldn't be in trouble anymore. But that yours was kind of the first account I remember reading of, like, oh, my God, this is actually what, you know, the actual impact to a person um, where a collection would just be destroyed and, and you know, put up in flames. It's, it's very true. Um, across America, in the mid to late 50s, there were comic book burnings. You could see... There's stills of them. I don't know if there's any kind of video. Uh, St. Louis, I think Jersey City. Um, and you, you look at the pictures, you think you're looking at Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Hmm. Um, but just as destructive as the burnings were the moms that said, okay, this crap gets out of the house right now and either trashed them or gave them away to what was a common thing back then, the post-World War II paper drives. Hmm. And you would collect newspapers, magazines. You know, it was recycling before there was recycling is the best way I can describe it. And so many collections went that way. And for those of, of us fortunate enough to hang on to ours, um, the remaining 90% disappeared when we all went off to college. And our moms threw out our comic books and baseball cards, which is, you could say, a terrible thing. Or for those of us that kept ours, it was a great thing because that's what made them so rare and valuable. Absolutely. Now, I want to get back to your, your newest book for a moment. So, I mean, obviously a, a spell of time had uh, elapsed since your, your first memoir came out. What kind of inspired you, first of all, to, you know, to want to write another one? And again, the idea of how you kind of package this one in terms of how you laid out the chapters, etc. Like, was that always how you wanted to kind of position it? Like, less, like it's still about you, but the first one was a little bit more straightforward. And this one was more about kind of almost like a how-to guide uh, of, you know, of that kind of guides your life. And then you know, figuring out which stories kind of fit into that, like how early in the process were you able to develop that? And again, what was the, the total kind of development time on the book itself? So my first book, The Boy Who Loved Batman, really tells the story of my dream and what it took for a blue-collar kid from Jersey who did not come from money and couldn't buy his way into Hollywood, who had no friends or relatives in Hollywood, didn't know anyone in Hollywood, how I was able to make my dream come true. And the fact that if I could do it, anybody could do it, if you have the passion, if you're willing to make the commitment, 
and if you can persevere. And the inspiration for that primarily was um, an idol of mine, Gene Shepard. I used to listen to Gene Shepard's radio shows at night when I was falling asleep uh, in the New York area. He was on WOR radio in New York, and he was the greatest storyteller I had ever heard. And I was entranced by his stories. They were funny, they were meaningful, and of course Gene Shepard would go on to not only write the movie A Christmas Story, but also narrate it. And it was his style of humor and storytelling that I desperately wanted to capture in The Boy Who Loved Batman. Mm. For Batman's Batman, it was very different. The reason, one of the main reasons, I should say, that I decided I've got to get into the movie and TV industry was from a book I read probably around the time I was starting high school. And it was called Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. Mm. Bill Goldman was the dean of all screenwriters at the time. If you look up his credits, um, they are unbelievable from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, All the President's Men. I mean, so many absolutely amazing, great movies that he wrote. And it was anecdotes talking about the craziness, the insanity of Hollywood, egos running mad, screamers, deal breakers, meeting with creative people. <coughs> it was the clash, excuse me, it was the clash of the creative and business and how they couldn't get along or in certain cases could get along and made hits that were memorable for generations. That inspired me. And I wanted this book to be my version of my adventures in the screen trade in L.A., in New York. Not just the winners, not just the hits, but all the other ones. The majority of everything I've been working on for the last 46 years now, that for one reason or another, wilted on the vine, never got produced, the ones that got away. And there's lessons to be learned in that, life lessons. Um, my father always said to me, the measure of a person's success is not by what he or she has achieved, it's by how hard he or she has tried. And this book really tries to make that point. I talk about what it means to be a producer in Hollywood. I define the difference between Hollywood land of milk and honey on the creative side and Hollywood land of bilk and money on the business side. And I have, for better or worse, experienced both and learned to live in that insane world that had no safety nets, no security, and that was amazing. Does feel like one of the things that often not gets. I mean, obviously, you know, to people outside of Hollywood, there's obviously this romanticized idea of what it is, and I do feel like at times one of the jobs that people maybe have the least understanding on is the role of a, of a producer. So, I mean, your book definitely helps to kind of elucidate what that actually can mean. And and one of the things that's so interesting about it is how you really go into so much detail about the the myriad of things it can be depending on the project. Yeah, and um, it's it's the fact that in Hollywood there is this thing called development hell, and it is aptly named 
Um, it typically will go on for years and years and years. And everyone who's ever worked for me knows that there are three ways to measure time. There is real-world time, uh, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. There is Michael time. Why wasn't this done yesterday? Why can't we do this today? And then there's what we've encountered as Hollywood time. And Hollywood time, you take the longest amount of time you could ever imagine, you multiply it by four, and then you add 20%. And believe me, if you don't have a high level for frustration, there's no way you're going to survive it. I mean, the fact that uh, your first, you know, biggest success uh, with bringing, bringing Batman, as you say, the, you know, the dark and serious Batman to the screen, the fact that it took as long as it did and was as arduous as it was, I guess was, you know, kind of your roadmap for this is, you know, this was this was the success and yet this is what it took to get here. And it's, it's true. I mean, it really is all true. Um, and, you know, what is, again, if we go back to what is success, it's really not so much about standing on the mountaintop. It's about the that I was involved in, whether it's Batman, Constantine, mm. um, National Treasure. Bam, took 10 years or more. And as I always say today when I'm out pitching projects, guys, ladies, I've run out of 10 years. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I can't keep doing projects and take 10 years because I've been in this business 46 and I've run out. So, uh, you know, we're looking to do things a little bit quicker. But even when we talk about doing them quick, man, you know, it, it, they all turn into five-year odysseys. Mm -hmm. So it, it, if you're not prepared to, you know, strap yourself in, uh, in your seatbelt and ride the roller coaster, you're, you're never going to make it. But you on the other hand... You, you can make it, and I'm living proof of that. I'm a history major. I'm not a film major. <laughs> I, I have a master's degree in urban education. I have a law degree, a JD in law. And I still got to where I wanted to go. There were still things that all taught me and um, experiences and um, information that I learned that helped me get to where I wanted to go in the uh, motion picture and television and animation industry. And, and that's pretty amazing. There's a thousand different ways you can get in. And then there's a thousand different ways you can succeed and 4,000 different ways you can fall on your face. <laughs> So a question I have, uh, given that uh, we've talked about, you know, with how time kind of works in, in Hollywood, et cetera, was it very, both times writing writing these memoirs, was it very satisfying to, you know, you, you are the main, you know, driver here, you know, it's going to go as fast or as slow as it is based on your abilities to, to, you know, drive the bus and write this book as opposed to relying upon someone else. Was that very, very gratifying to kind of be in control that way after years and years of, as you said, kind of working on these things that go through development hell and are get stuck. But now you're writing a book that's all about you and you are the only one you really have to kind of look at and say, are you going to write this today? Yeah, it's intensely gratifying. Uh, to tell you how I did these things, um, I went away for three months to write The Boy Who Loved Batman. I said goodbye to my wife. Um, I, we had a place in Sarasota, Florida. I went down to Sarasota, and I said, I'm not coming back until I've written this book. And um, got down there. My goal um, was to write 5,000 words a day. And I wound up for three months working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. 
the worst time for me was usually around four or five in the morning when I couldn't keep my eyes open and everything I'm reading on the page, I'm, I'm rereading and I'm retyping the same thing. And I, I okay, I got to stop. And that was painful. I'd leave myself a couple of notes and um, would then get about four hours of sleep, get up, have some coffee and get back at it. And that's how I wrote the book. I had to be isolated. I had to be away from all distractions. And I would only answer emails or phone calls uh, once a day, later in the day. Um, and that was really important. For the second book, Batman's Batman, when COVID hit, I sat down with my kids and I said, listen, this thing, this pandemic could go on for six months or more. I had no idea it would be like two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I said, so... Everybody in Hollywood is sitting there shaking, going, oh, my God, this is a catastrophe. I said, we can't look at it that way. We have to say, oh, my God, this is an opportunity. And we have to figure out how we can make use of this time in isolation or in a bubble, what we can do and accomplish, and how we can begin to adjust for what certainly when it's over will not be the same normal that we were used to. There will be a new normal. And um, for my part on that, I sat down and I wrote Batman's Batman. I then wrote the play based on The Boy Who Loved Batman, which is now being produced as a Broadway play, um, which we're going to be announcing at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, I then wrote a feature film based on The Boy Who Loved Batman, um, the script of which was I was able to get the number one choice I had as director to sign on which is a project we're going to do once the Broadway show starts running. And then my agent said, my God, if you're going to have this as a Broadway show and as a movie, we can, we'll be able to sell it as a streaming series in two minutes. This could be the wonder, it'll be the wonder years for kids who grew up reading comic books. So I wrote a Bible for a TV series and did all of that when the entire industry was basically shut down and since we came out of COVID, all of that has paid off dramatically. It's interesting. It does feel like that's kind of the, the method of your life when everything else, you know, is kind of says don't do it or don't do anything or, you know, back off. You just kind of barrel ahead and you figured out a way to not just be productive, but be super productive. Because it sounds like the metric ton of stuff that you've been working on with all those projects, you know, that could have been other people's, you know, multiple years. Well, I'll tell you something. Um, with July 4th coming up, my wife and I are taking a vacation from July 4th through 8th. And we are not really familiar with this word vacation <laughs> because we have not had one in the last 16 years. Um, for my job, I fly all over the world. It seemed to me like pre-COVID, I'm always at airports. I'm always either going to an airport, coming from an airport, and when it came time to take a break, the last thing I wanted to do was go to an airport and fly someplace. And um, when I did travel, and I, again, I've traveled the country, I've traveled the world, it was always for business. So I've never been to South America because I never had business there. I've never been to Portugal or New, Ze or New Zealand because I never had business there. And now I've got a bucket list and we are starting to knock off, post-COVID, we're starting to knock off all these places I have not been before. And we're going to explore this uh, this strange new word of vacation and see what's what. 
Um, but that's never been really an important part of my life, even a significant part of my life. Um, it's, it's all been about the work because when your work is based on your passions, it's not work. It just is not work. There's a big difference between me and my brother, Paul, who also loves what he does and is great at what he does. My brother is an optometrist in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And on Friday night at six o'clock, he closes his office and goes home. And from that time till nine o'clock on Monday morning, when he reopens it, he doesn't think of work. I never, ever stop thinking about work. The next idea, the next property, if I'm reading a book, a magazine article, some news item, um, how do we strategize this? How can we play chess with this? What's the next five strategic moves we can do to move this project ahead or to find the right director or writer or actor to package with it? How do we sell this? What? I mean, it never, ever, ever ends. And, uh, and I'm good with that. Absolutely. A uh, quick question about two two of the um, things that are in your book. You, you you tell so many great stories. So there's two two moments I kind of picked out, and I was curious which one to you is more memorable. Would it be throwing out the first pitch at a baseball game, or watching Stanley act out how you want to draw, or how he wants something drawn? Oh, it was the Stanley moment. <laughs> it was. Uh, oh my God, you know, and I I don't know if I used the exact language I actually said. Uh, you know, in my book, I probably changed it. Um, and and I'll I'll retell the story so uh, your listeners know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I had, in the early 2000s, I brought Stan Lee over to DC Comics and set up an arrangement where Stan would recreate the DC superheroes the way he might have done them had he created them at Marvel. And we got the most legendary and cutting-edge new artists in the industry to work with us on this, he did it for 13 months. And you talk about ahead of his time. Um, Stan's Batman was black. Uh, his Wonder Woman and Aquaman were Hispanic. His Robin was Latino. His Shazam was Indian. His Flash was female. Um, he was really ahead of his time on, on these things in a lot of ways. And it, it was really exciting. So I'm at Stan's office. The day the artwork came in for the first issue, which was Stan Lee's Superman, and it was by one of my favorite artists of all time, John Buscema. John, of course, you know from uh, Conan and um, so many great, great, great Marvel comics in particular. And it would turn out to be John's last work before he passed. And it comes in and Stan is looking at the pages and handling, handing them to me and he's so excited by what he sees. Then he gets to this one page and he goes, no! No, this is not what I wanted. This is not dramatic. This, no. And he goes, Michael, wait a minute. And he takes out from his desk a piece of, um, like, tracing paper. And he tastes it over the original artwork. And he hands me a pen. <clears throat> and he says, okay, draw the panel borders. <laughs> so I go, Stan, you know, I thought, he goes, you can do this. Just draw it. You know, just trace over it. Draw the panel borders. And I did that. He goes, all right. Now, in that center panel is to reconstruct that. <laughs> he goes, all right. Now, you see how he has Superman approaching us? That's not how I want Superman. I want him flying right at the reader. So you got to draw that. I said, well, Sam, what, oh, I, I, he goes, all right, look, 
And then with that, he climbs on his couch. <laughs> I was in the chair next to it. There was a little end table in between us. He has one foot on the end table, knocks the lamp over, and grabs it at the last second. Um, has the other, the other foot is on the arm of the couch. He's got his arms extended, showing me what he looks like in flight, looking directly at him, and goes, now draw this. <laughs> and I'm, I start drawing it, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is how he used to work with Kirby. I read all of these stories about how he used to you know, jump on furniture and do stuff. And it was like, holy shit, I'm freaking Jack Kirby. It, it, was, it was such an incredible magic moment for this comic book geek who started out in life with Stan as his idol and then later had Stan as his mentor and later had Stan as his friend and now had Stan as his creative partner. And it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Sounds like it. I know I have to let you go in just a moment, but I have a few listener questions. Um, um, one was, uh, wh- what is your definitive Batman costume, I guess, for you? And actually, I would say, you know, what would be your definitive both comic book version of Batman's costume and also in, uh, in live action thus far? That's a real interesting question. So, you know, I grew up with the gray and blue costume. And when Carmine Infantino redesigned it for the new look Batman in 1964, it, you know, it, it twisted my head around my body and turned me upside down. Um, so I have to say as a kid, I was, I have to be partial to that one. I really do. Uh, as a comic book historian, of course, I love his original costume from uh, from '39, um, but it had to be the '64 costume for me. Uh, on the movies, it has been. I I felt in my heart of hearts that my job as producer was to do everything I could to support our filmmakers um, and be their number one cheerleader, so that if a filmmaker has a vision for a movie, for a character, and we all sign on to that basic vision that um, I had to 100% support that. With Michael Keaton's costume, the technology back then was extremely limited. Um, What we had to work with in 88, uh, for the 89 movie, improved by the time Batman Returns came out. Um, and, and, and as the years went by, there were more and more improvements. And then Chris Nolan's vision was to do a realistic Batman, a Batman that people could believe could actually happen in this day and age. And, and so he adjusted everything from the costume to the Batmobile to kind of make sense within that vision. Um, Matt Reeves had a vision of a young Batman who had you know, kind of been starting out had not yet evolved into the Dark Knight, was still getting hurt, tripping over his own feet, learning a lot, and using his brain as the world's greatest detective. And even the Batmobile hadn't hadn't come to fruition yet. You know, it's something that will also be evolving. And that was incredibly cool to me. I've been waiting 33 years trying to convince the studio that we needed to do a movie showing Batman's detective ability. Mm. And it was worth the wait. So um, that's probably the best way I can, I can answer the question 
and I know it's sort of a non-answer answer, um, <laughs> but if you would ask me who are my favorite children, I would have given you the same kind of answer. For sure. Um, again, I know I have to let you go, but I do have a, um, a general question that I asked people yeah. who were kind of fans at the time, especially because you were kind of working there around DC at the time as well. Um, from just a historian perspective, what was it like for you as a fan at the time to see the DC explosion and then become the implosion? What was that like to you at the time? Okay, I ju- you dropped out on me, so I need you to repeat the question. The question is, as, as a fan in the time, in the, in the 70s, what was it like to see both the DC explosion and the implosion as a fan? Well, I was there for the explosion, and the explosion was uh, incredible. Um, it gave me, it opened the door for me and all my fellow woodchucks. We were the first generation of fans who were brought in to work at DC Comics to be groomed to be uh, future editors and, uh, in Paul Levitt's case, president of DC. Um, and it was a great opportunity with the expanded books. They gave us our chance to write um, comics professionally. So the first thing I wrote was The Shadow, number nine, for Denny O'Neill. And that went well. And then Denny gave, said, all right, from now on, we're going to do every other um, issue of The Shadow. We're going to alternate. So I got to do the, sh- the first time ever The Shadow meets the Avenger and Justice Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Julie. I said, oh, Julie, thank you so much. Thank you for that. He said, how'd you like to take a shot at Batman? <laughs> so I got to write Batman with my buddy Bob Rosakis. And we were writing detective comics. I mean, this was all dream come true stuff. And then Paul Levitz was the um, assistant editor to Joe Orlando. So I started writing everything from House Mystery to House of Secrets to Weird Wolf to Weird Mystery. Uh, God knows what what we turned out. Oh, my most renowned creation was for Unexpected. I wrote a story called Hopping Down the Bunny Trail. There's probably two dozen websites devoted to that story. It's been called one of the top ten greatest horror stories ever written in a comic book, one of the top ten most traumatic stories ever written in a comic book, one of the top ten scariest comic books, and one of the top ten sickest comic books ever written. So I take professional pride in that one in particular. Uh, I traumatized an entire generation of comic book readers with that story. Um, but but that's what it was like. They gave me my, you know, I pitched stuff and they, they let me run with it. I did Beowulf Dragon Slayer for six issues before the implosion hit. Um, and we all knew with everything we were doing, Paul was doing Stalker. And, um, uh, you know, everybody had their own little project. And we all knew they were only going to last a, a handful of issues. But, man, we cut our teeth on it. We learned about graphic storytelling that way. And it, it was it was a field day uh, creatively for all of us. And then with the implosion, you know, history will tell you the story of how that actually occurred. But it largely involved a deal that went south between Marvel and DC. Planning on doing 25-cent books. So there was lots of backups that were being done for the 25-cent books, more work for us uh, uh, as new young writers. Uh, But then unexpectedly and quickly, Marvel dropped down to 20% and left DC on the stand five cents more than Marvel, which your average comic book reader walking into 7-Eleven did not particularly appreciate. 
And then you had, as a result, the D.C. implosion. And um, it was shock and awe at the time. So I was sorry for a couple of reasons. I was sorry to see so many books and so many characters get thrown under the bus. But I, I was especially sorry that so much talent, so many writers and artists um, had to be shelved because there no longer was work and they had a big inventory that had to be burned up. And, uh, and that, that was very sad to witness. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it was obviously long before my time, but I just find it such a, a fascinating kind of pivotal period in, in the comic book industry and how, you know, it really impacted so many things. And as you said, it, it let a lot of people get their start, um, or at least, you know, kind of cut their teeth on projects, but then so many things went away and also kind of, you know, pared down the diversity of, you know, what you would see at, at a DC uh, comics, because suddenly it became more about superheroes and you got a lot less of those other books. Yeah, which was doubly sad. DC put out the best quality westerns and the best quality war comics that you would want to find. Um, Joe Kubert's work on Tarzan, Nestor Redondo's work on Rima. Um, this stuff was gorgeous. Uh, Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein on Swamp Thing and then Nestor taking over, uh, you know, the, the Filipino talent pool of artists that was there at the time. Um, the, the humor comics, uh, the science fiction mystery comics, um, the DC's biggest success on these other genres is still really being felt today because as you look across the traditional stands of comic books published by the majors, I'm not talking about alternative press and graphic novels right now. Um, it, it is by far the vast majority based on superheroes. And that's sad because never in the history of comics were comic books and superheroes synonymous. Hmm. And now everyone thinks of them that way, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, how could you not when, I mean, when I was growing up, there were three Batman titles being published regularly. Batman, Detective Comics, and World's Finest Comics with Superman. On occasion, he would show up in a Justice League. Um, Batman team-ups. And then um, the next thing you know was the Batman family. And, you know, things were beginning to expand. I don't know what the count is now. It went to like 32 monthly Batman titles. It feels like um, it. Yeah. Um, things, the times, they have certainly changed. And I cannot... It'll be up to a historian 25 years from now to determine if they change for the better or for the worse. Um, but um, it's interesting times in which we live. And like everything else in life, whether you're talking about the entertainment industry, uh, the tech industry... We're in a state of constant revolution. Everything is changing almost day by day. And the comic book industry is no exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. for, for the kid who loved Batman, though, is, is there some part of you that at least, you know, at least if one character had to dominate DC shelves, at least it's Batman? Well, I'll tell you what my ultimate victory was. This was validation of my entire career. This was validation of the 10 years I spent from the time I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics till we got our first movie made in 1989 and that was when they opened in San Diego the Comic Con Museum which is amazing it is vast 
It's an incredible place. And they started a comic book Hall of Fame. The first character inducted into the Hall of Fame was Batman, not Superman. And my God, when I was growing up, that would have been the impossible dream. It couldn't happen. It could not possibly have happened. But it did. And that's my validation. I have a, a final question, but it's just reading reading your books, and there's just something about um, you gravitate obviously towards Batman, but also the Shadow uh, and characters like that in the in the pulp era. Era. What is what is it that pulp really means to you, or why is it so important to you, or is this the style that you enjoy? Adam, your your question just dropped on me again. Okay, I was just asking, what is it about pulp? that meant so much to you? Because obviously, you know, the Shadow, uh, early Batman, very kind of pulpy characters. What is it about the pulp kind of genre that meant so much to you? I'm a historian. Um, I majored in history. I'm a history buff. Uh, I love Hollywood history, New York history, and especially comic book history. How can I not? Uh, I got to work at DC Comics starting when I was 19 years old. Um, I got to meet all of the creators artists and writers and editors and publishers um, and almost all the comic book companies, the vast majority were based in New York at the time Uh, what a way to learn what a way to learn and so being a student at the history of it all, I understood the incredible amount of influence and impact the shadow had on the creation of Batman Mm. I met Bill Finger, I'm probably one of only maybe two or three people left standing who met and talked to Bill Finger I still have his autograph and he told me straight from the horse's mouth he told me about how Batman was created and the influence of the shadow and that's incredible the influence of Doc Savage on Siegel and Schuster in the creation of Superman it's almost immeasurable the Avenger um, and so many of the other characters the Whisperer who was actually police commissioner James Gordon. Okay, swallow that one, Batman <laughs> fans. Um, early versions of a Joker who showed up in the pulps. Um, you know, you could go on and on with this stuff. And when you realize that the November 1936 issue of Shadow, called Partners of Peril, was ripped off by Bill Finger in creating Detective Number 27, case of the chemical syndicate it was literally ripped off and the artwork from it bob kane either traced or copied from several sources including a couple of little big little books and also that very shadow pulp stories illustrations so you know this (laughs) this is really really important so i needed to understand all of that so i voraciously collected and read all those luckily when i was a kid they first started reprinting them in paperback format. It started with Doc Savage, mm. then The Shadow, then Justice Incorporated, and G8 and his Battle Aces, um, uh, The Spider. I, I read it. I read all of it. Absolutely all of it. So any chance I've had to write The Shadow in particular, or more recently Doc Savage and Justice Incorporated, I absolutely jumped at the opportunity. And I've actually written two graphic novels one is the first ever meeting between the shadow and the green hornet it's called shadow green hornet dark nights it's alternative fiction and then i wrote 
the graphic novel that was the first ever in 85 years teaming up of the three great Street and Smith pulp heroes, Doc Savage, The Shadow, and The Avenger. And I was beyond thrilled. This was so meaningful to me as the historian who understood their impact. As a historian, I mean, have you considered, you know, putting together, you know, actual, you know, a narrative or a history narrative on certain segments of comic book history that really do intrigue you so that people have a better understanding of where this medium has come from? I did that. And um, I was fortunate enough and honored to have been asked by the Smithsonian Institution to design, develop, and teach their first ever um, online course on comic books. And there were three of us that banded together to do it. It was me, my son David, who handled everything post-1980, and Stan Lee. I was taken into the Smithsonian sub-basement and was allowed to rifle through their comic book, original art, and memorabilia collection. Picture the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Picture me in that warehouse rifling through those crates. Um, it, it was another comic book geek dream come true. And um, the course is still available through edX, it is free. It's called The Rise of the Superheroes, 17 Lessons, and I teach the majority of them, and the ones I did with Stan, um, I interviewed him because I knew which anecdotes to ask him and how to bring out the information that would be vital to the course, but I did the entire course off the top of my head. There were no cue cards and no scripts. Oh, wow. So, um, if anyone wants to... Um, get my perspective on the history of comics, go to EDX, edX, Smithsonian Institution, Rise of the Superheroes, and it is, again, free uh, to sign up for. And when we first launched it, I believe we had something like 160,000 students uh, sign up, and it's been uh, it's been really, really great experience and very well received. Wow. What was the oddest thing that you saw in the Smithsonian in terms of comic book history? I saw a of a Superman uh, comic, and I was with all these curators from the Smithsonian, and they said, well, Michael, can you tell us anything about it? I said, well, the first thing you need to know about original art, when you get it in your hands, turn it over. They said, why would you want to look at the back? I said, watch. I turned it over, and sure enough, there were drawings by Joe Schuster of Lois Lane in ink that were absolutely gorgeous. There were some pencil drawings on some of the artwork on the back that um, were X-rated. Um, <laughs> there was all kinds of stuff, and I knew, you know, I knew from my experience that a lot of time the the artist will do that on the back of the original art, at least in the old days. And uh, so it was that it was very fun to have those um, eye-opening discoveries that totally elated and surprised or shocked the Smithsonian curator as well. That's very cool. Well, Michael, thanks again for taking so much time today. I know we went over time, but uh, I really appreciate your insights. And again, people should definitely check out both your books. Uh, the most recent one being Batman's Batman. Uh, it's a phenomenal read and uh, I really enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I invite anybody who may be at San Diego Comic-Con that Saturday, I'm going to be doing two. One on Stan Lee's 
centennial. It would have been his 100th birthday this December. Wow. We're going to make a major announcement there. And uh, we're also going to be announcing my Broadway play. And uh, everybody from New York is going to be flying in from that. Um, and uh, it's just going to be a, a great, great to get back to San Diego for the first time in a couple of years post-COVID. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. All the best.